One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Bucks at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Tom Brady and the Buccaneers are locked into the four seed in the NFC. The Falcons have long been eliminated from postseason contention. Carlton Davis, Julio Jones, Logan Ryan, Donovan Smith, and Vita Vea have yet to practice this week for the Bucks, and considering their playoff situation, it would make sense that all five primary contributors rest in Week 18. How Tampa Bay will try to win. First off, the Buccaneers are locked into the four seed in the NFC. Head coach Todd Bowles indicated that his starters would start in Week 18, but the team is also expected to carry third-string quarterback Kyle Trask as active on game day, which should serve as our indication that the team is likely to rest as many primary contributors as possible at some point during the game. The problem is we don't know exactly how long the starters will play, introducing some level of uncertainty regarding any fantasy utility to come from this side of the game. What we do know is that the Bucks have been at or above league average in pass rate over expectation in all but three games this season, played an elevated pace of play, first overall, second with a lead of seven or more points, first in the second half, and averaged 44.8 pass attempts per game this season. With the team having only so many inactive spots available on game day, expect veterans like Tom Brady, Leonard Fournette, Mike Evans, and Chris Godwin to have their snap rates limited in some capacity in a meaningless game. Leonard Fournette let it slip on social media that he has been dealing with a Liz Frank injury that makes it hard to push off, making it extremely likely that he is one of the first players off the field once Todd Bowles has seen enough from his typical starters. The team has typically kept four running backs active on game day, with Giovanni Bernard a special teams contributor, making it highly likely we see Keyshawn Vaughn and Bernard get some additional reps out of the backfield this week. Along the same lines, I find it highly unlikely that Rashad White would see additional opportunities as a primary contributor. All things considered, this is a great spot to give Vaughn an extended run as a back that would be entering the fourth year of his rookie contract in 2023. The matchup on the ground yields an above average 4.55 net adjusted line yards metric against the Falcons defense seeding 23.4 DK points per game to opposing backfields this season. With reports out of Tampa Bay that the team will carry three quarterbacks on the active roster for game day, it is difficult to project the distribution of snaps amongst both the quarterbacks and pass catchers this week. That said, Julio Jones has yet to practice this week and would make sense as a game day inactive, likely leaving Scotty Miller, Brashad Perryman, and punt-slash-kick returner Devin Tompkins as the wide receivers to join Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Russell Gage on the active roster for Sunday. I wouldn't expect Evans or Godwin to play beyond when Brady does, opening up an interesting scenario where Russell Gage is almost required to play the entirety of the game. If that is the case, there is upside to be had at his $4,400 price tag against the Falcons team allowing the ninth most fantasy points per game to opposing wide receivers. How Atlanta will try to win. The Falcons are now one of only two teams with PROE values below league average in every single game played this season, along with the Bears. They also run a slow offense, ranking 26th in overall pace of play and 27th in situation-neutral pace of play. Vegas has the Falcons and still has four-point favorites at home this week, which gives us an idea of the expected game flow here more than anything else. That's important because it should allow the Falcons to run their desired offense for the majority of the game. 
rookie quarterback Desmond Ritter has performed about as we'd have expected as the starter, the biggest confirmation coming through his rushing utilization. As we covered earlier this season, his mobility is less explosive as it is tied to being able to escape the pocket, and with rush attempts of 4, 4, and 6 across his first three NFL starts, the field is likely now realizing that he is more Patrick Mahomes than Justin Fields, at least as far as rushing upside goes. The backfield has been a tight committee amongst Tyler Algier and Corderell Patterson following the injury to Caleb Huntley, with the former leading the way in snaps and opportunities since Patterson returned from the injured reserve in Week 9. We talked last week about the potential to leverage late-season uncertainty surrounding usage on teams with nothing left to play for, and the Falcons were the example I used in that discussion. As in, Algier would be the player with untapped upside as far as snap rate and opportunity share goes as opposed to the veteran Patterson. The matchup on the ground yields an above-average 4.45 net-adjusted line yards metric, but the biggest news is the likely absence of Vita Vea, who has been the cornerstone of the Buccaneers' run defense this season. The splits in effectiveness at stopping the run with Vea in and out are stark this season. Desmond Ritter has pass attempts of 26, 26, and 33 in his NFL starts, which should be considered his likeliest range this week. Rookie wide receiver Drake London has been targeted at a massive 32.9% clip, 28 targets on those 85 Ritter pass attempts, by the rookie signal caller, and the Bucks are dealing with multiple injuries in the secondary, which could thin things out a bit on the back end this week. No other Atlanta pass catcher played more than 61% of the offensive snaps last week, highlighting the relative London or bust nature of this pass offense under current conditions. Olimidi Zacchaeus, Demir Bird, Cotterell Hodge, Parker Hesse, and Michael Pruitt all bring low relative upside to the table this week and can be largely overlooked for fantasy purposes. Likeliest Game Flow We'll be hard-pressed to find a likeliest game flow for most of these games that have little or nothing to play for this week, with a high likelihood that motivation levels vary from team to team. I like the way JM put it on Thursday's roster-building vlog, where he broke the teams into three distinct categories this week. One, the teams with nothing to play for that have been eliminated for a while now, the Falcons. Two, the teams with nothing to play for that have locked up playoff bids and seeding, the Buccaneers. And three, the teams fighting for a playoff berth or seeding. The reason it makes sense to distinguish the teams into the first two categories is that the teams in the first grouping carry more certainty than the teams in the second grouping. As such, consider the Falcons a bit more certain in this spot, while the Buccaneers carry a wide range of potential outcomes, both from individual players and from the team, due to the uncertainty surrounding expected snap rates and usages. If we leverage Vegas for this discussion, it becomes apparent that the Falcons are expected to dictate the game environment which should mean below-average offensive snaps run from scrimmage from the game as a whole, but the potential for additional offensive plays to be run from the Falcons, who come into this game averaging only 59 plays per game, good for 27th in the league. Patriots at Bills. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 43.5. Due to time constraints and the uncertainty surrounding this game, the Edge audio for Patriots at Bills will not be available this week. Please consult OneWeekSeason.com for the full write-up. Vikings at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 43. Game Overview by Hilo. Justin Jefferson needs 194 receiving yards to break Calvin Johnson's single-season receiving yardage record. The Vikings can regain the two-seed out of the NFC with a win and a 49ers loss, so expect max effort with the 49ers not playing until the afternoon. The Vikings are likely to play with their third-string center and various injuries along the offensive line. 
Justin Fields has been shut down for the season, narrowly missing out on the record for most rushing yards in a season from a quarterback. Nathan Pick Peterman will start for the Bears, which is likely to fundamentally change how their offenses run, with the team moving from one of the most mobile and dynamic quarterbacks in the league to a pocket passer. How Minnesota will try to win. We should see a standard Vikings game plan this week, considering they can regain the two seed with a win in a San Francisco loss, and the Vikings play in the early time slot while the 49ers play in the afternoon. As such, expect the same pass-balanced offense that utilizes the short to intermediate areas of the field for most of their aerial work, and a backfield primarily running through workhorse back Dalvin Cook. Expect an offense run primarily from 11 personnel, with Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, K.J. Osborne, and T.J. Hawkinson seeing the vast majority of the work throughout. Finally, the Vikings operate one of the fastest offenses in the league, ranking third in overall pace of play, fourth in situation neutral pace of play, and second in pace of play with the score within six points. Dalvin Cook has regained his workhorse status this season after seeing his usage and snap rate decline last year. To highlight just how much he has relied on in this backfield, consider this. Dalvin Cook has seen 75% or more of the offensive snaps in every non-blowout game since week 6, averaging 21.75 running back opportunities across those 8 games. For comparison's sake, that's more than 3 opportunities per game more than Saquon Barkley is averaging this season. The primary knock to Dalvin's game this season has been an offensive line ranked 27th in run-blocking metrics, which has kept Dalvin from routinely eclipsing the 100-yard bonus. Those worries largely go out the window against the Bears, with the matchup yielding an above-average 4.48 net-adjusted line yards metric against the defense seeding 29.2 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Justin Jefferson needs 194 yards to break Calvin Johnson's single-season record. While that doesn't necessarily mean we should expect Jefferson to see an increase in his already lofty target expectation on a per-play basis, it does leave open the possibility that Jefferson could continue playing into the fourth quarter in a blowout game environment if he is approaching that milestone. Again, not likely to influence play calling, more that it could allow Jefferson to remain in the game when other starters are pulled late. Similarly, we shouldn't expect Kirk Cousins to approach the 48 and 54 pass attempts he held the two weeks prior to last week's trouncing at the hands of the Packers, but the season average of 39.9 pass attempts per game gives us a solid baseline from which to base our expectations. All of that to say, I see no reason to expect any departure from the 12 to 16 target range for Jefferson in a matchup that he should absolutely destroy. Consider Jefferson one of the top one or two on-paper plays on the slate. Behind Jefferson are the standard culprits for the Vikings, with Thielen being held under six targets in four of his last five games, KJ Osborne seeing five or fewer targets in all but four games this season, and TJ Hawkinson confined to a low A-dot role that requires both schemed usage and touchdowns in order to return a GPP viable score. How Chicago will try to win. I don't think anyone knows how the Bears will try to win this week, and I don't think we can even say that they want to try and win this week. If the Texans slip up and beat the Colts, which is not outside the realm of possibilities, the Bears take over the number one draft pick with a loss. It has already been made abundantly clear through the sitting of Justin Fields, who was chasing the single-season rushing record at the quarterback position, that this team is prioritizing the future. Enter Nathan Pick Peterman, who is best known for throwing five interceptions and one freaking half earlier in his career. But that same change at quarterback is likely to fundamentally alter how the team is trying to move the ball as the change from a dynamic and mobile quarterback to the statuesque pocket passer in Peterman is a massive change. 
I would expect the same high rush rates, albeit with lower efficiency, without the threat of a mobile quarterback. It's highly likely we see Peterman forced into long down and distance to go situations, which spells trouble considering Chicago's offensive line. Khalil Herbert returned from injured reserve to his normal usage and workload, capping the fantasy upside of David Montgomery in the process. Montgomery is an unrestricted free agent this season, which leaves open the possibility of Herbert overtaking the lead back role as the Bears continue to assess how the current pieces on the roster fit in their future plans. Although far from a guarantee, the per-touch upside Herbert brings to the table could bring GPP viability to an increased workload. If the coaching staff instead elects to keep both Montgomery and Herbert in their standard roles, expect a more natural 1A, 1B, 60-40 split between the two, rendering both borderline useless from a fantasy perspective in the process. The pure rushing yards matchup, a slightly above average 4.42 net adjusted line yards metric, against a Vikings defense allowing 24.6 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, including 15 total touchdowns allowed to the position. Man, the Bears have gone full, let's figure out what we have for the future, as far as pass catchers go. And it makes sense, considering Darnell Mooney was lost for the season, and their in-season investment, Chase Claypool, has been in and out of the lineup as he's fought through injury. For all intents and purposes, Darnell Mooney, Chase Claypool, and Cole Komet should be considered the primary pieces of the future for this team. With Equinemius St. Brown, Dante Pettis, Byron Pringle, and Keel Harry, and Vellis Jones all fighting to stay relevant in the future. As things currently stand, it is difficult to project any pass catcher outside of Komet for enough snaps to even matter for fantasy purposes, and even then, Komet has not seen more than a modest seven targets this season. Not much to like here, my friends. Likeliest Game Flow The Vikings have the third highest Vegas implied team total on the slate, and can be expected to give this game their all considering playoff seeding in the NFC. Considering the Bears allow the most points per game in the league this season, 27.1, I get the feeling the field might be a little too low on the Vikings in this spot. As in, their Vegas implied team total is currently lower than what the Bears allow on average this season, and the Vikings offense averages the 8th most points per game. All of that to say, the Vikings are in a fantastic spot this week, with the only concern being how late into the game the starters play if they are running away with this one. That concern is somewhat mitigated in Justin Jefferson's case as he chases history. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Ravens at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Baltimore has clinched a playoff berth and is still alive to win the AFC North if they win this game, depending on what the NFL decides to do with the delayed Buffalo-Cincinnati game. As of this writing, the status of Lamar Jackson for this game is still in question. He has not practiced in weeks, and the Ravens have not scored more than 17 points without him. The Bengals' playoff situation is a mess, given the uncertainty of their postponed game against the Bills, but they are likely to want and need a win this week. These teams have differing philosophies, with the Bengals having an aggressive offense built around their passing game, while the Ravens are built around their running game and dual-threat quarterbacks. How Baltimore will try to win There are a few moving parts for the Ravens in this game, as the uncertainty surrounding the Bengals' postponed game with the Bills casts a shadow of doubt on what this game means for each of them. Recently, there has been speculation the NFL could just cancel that game and use winning percentage to determine final regular season standings. 
That decision would lock up the AFC North title for the Bengals and leave the Ravens as either the 5 or 6 seed in the AFC. There is, however, a lot of benefit to being the 5 seed due to the fact that they would get to face the AFC South champions, Jags or Titans, rather than the Bills or Bengals in the first round. The Ravens would need to win this game, plus have the Chargers lose to the Broncos, in order for that to happen. Considering that this scenario is becoming increasingly likely, the biggest effect is likely to be the handling of star quarterback Lamar Jackson, who has been out since week 13 with a knee injury. Jackson was once again held out of practice to start this week, and if the Ravens can't win the division, then there is no reason to push him, especially with a potential rematch with the Bengals looming in the first round of the playoffs. With all of that in mind, I am approaching this game as if Jackson will not be playing this week. As for how Baltimore plays, they have averaged 12 points per game in the five games that Jackson has been out for. They have played some tough defenses and in some rough weather during that stretch, but it is hard to find much more offensive optimism at this point for a team whose receiving core resembles a preseason lineup and who has received almost zero production from their quarterback Tyler Huntley for the last month. The Bengals' defense is a solid but not great unit, but the Ravens managed only 20 points against the Browns and Falcons' bottom-tier defenses in recent weeks, which mutes the expectations we can have this week for Baltimore. Mark Andrews is the focal point of the passing game, seeing 34% of the team's targets in Huntley starts, and Andrews appeared close to full health for the first time in a while last week with his best game since week six. The Ravens are, however, a run-based offense and will split carries between J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards, with Huntley also being used as a runner to keep defenses honest. Dobbins took the majority of snaps last week in a very low-volume game for Baltimore, but head coach John Harbaugh spoke openly this week about the need to get Edwards more involved. The Bengals have been mediocre against the run this year, and we should expect the Ravens to pound the ball on the ground once again, and Andrews to be the focal point of the low-volume passing attack that focuses on the intermediate areas of the field. How Cincinnati will try to win In what has to be one of the stranger weeks an NFL team has ever dealt with, the Bengals may have already clinched their division title, or may not have. This is something that is extremely hard to gauge because of how the league handled last week's game and how the Bengals, in turn, approached this game with so many variables. In a vacuum, even if the Bengals have the AFC North already locked up, there would still be a lot of value in getting the number two seed if they can win and the Bills lose to the Patriots. In reality, it is nearly impossible to know the mental state of the team after being involved in the traumatic events of Monday night, and it wouldn't be shocking at all to see the Bengals give many of their key players a week off mentally to recover from that experience prior to heading into the playoffs. My hunch is that they will play their guys to start the game in any scenario, as they won't want their players to enter the playoffs, with Monday night being the last time they competed on an NFL field. There is, however, increased risk of the Bengals pulling the plug early on some guys, especially if Buffalo is taking care of business against the Patriots. It is notable that the Bills led the Patriots 17-7 at halftime of their first meeting, and this week's game will be played in Buffalo. From a purely philosophical perspective, the Bengals are a top-three team in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, PROE, and are facing a Ravens defense that is stout against the run and faces the sixth-highest opponent passing play percentage in the league. The Bengals don't force the ball on the ground, and this matchup, in particular, will push them to the air as well. The Bengals struggled a bit offensively in the first matchup between these teams in a 19-17 loss, but that game was marred by some mistakes and blown goal line opportunities. This week, we should expect Baltimore to be aggressive through the air and look to build a lead against a Ravens team that has struggled to put up points for over a month. 
There are a lot of scenarios that could play out from there on how the Bengals choose to operate, depending on several factors, but the approach for them entering the game is likely to be their usual approach of an aggressive passing attack with a moderate tempo. Likeliest Game Flow The Bengals are likely to control this game as a superior offensive team and a team that has, at least physically, had the equivalent of two weeks off. The Ravens' complete lack of explosiveness offensively leaves it unlikely that they will build a big lead, even if they are able to get on the scoreboard first. Meanwhile, the Bengals' offense is good enough that they should put up some points, and they have had some huge first halves against good defenses this season. Both teams play with a moderate tempo, so we shouldn't expect a track meet, and the scoring of this game is likely to rely heavily on the Bengals' offensive efficiency. We should also note that there is no love lost between these teams, and twice last year, the Bengals went out of their way to run it up on the Ravens. Finally, there is a relatively high chance that regardless of the outcome of this game, these two teams will face each other again in the first round of the playoffs. They are currently the number three and number six seeds, and barring any upsets, would finish the season that way. This introduces a potential strategic element where teams may not want to entirely show their hand the week before they play in a truly win-or-go-home scenario. To me, this increases the chances of the Bengals' offense going off as the Ravens may not want to tip their hand on coverages or schemes that they think will give Cincinnati trouble and give them a week to prepare for it. Texans at Colts. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 38. Game Overview by Hilo. These two teams have nothing left to play for, unless you consider Houston currently holding the first overall pick in the 2023 draft something left to play for. If the Texans find a way to win this week, they could lose that pick to the Bears with a Chicago loss. Sam Ellinger will start for the Colts after a failed experiment earlier in the season. The Colts managed a combined 19 points across Ellinger's first two starts this season. Kylan Granson and Stephon Gilmore both have yet to practice this week for the Colts. How Houston will try to win. First off, the Texans should want to not win. It's difficult to say an NFL team should want to lose, but here we are. Houston currently holds the top pick in the 2023 NFL Draft, a spot they could send over to Chicago should they win and the Bears lose, which is entirely possible. Furthering the weird dynamics of this game is a matchup with the Ellinger and Jeff Saturday-led Colts, who basically just have try-hard syndrome going for them and nothing else. Houston's pass rate over expectation values have been all over the map this season for several reasons. From personnel issues, wide receiver injuries, running back injuries, changing quarterback dynamics, etc., to defensive issues, to opponent. As we've seen over the last month of play, the Texans are now experimenting with a dual quarterback system, similar to the one employed by the Saints. Jeff Driscoll has played between 21 and 29% of the offensive snaps over the previous three games, after surprising everyone with a 50% snap rate in Week 14. But while that system adds a bit of dynamism to an otherwise static offense, it hasn't been fully embraced enough to truly matter, nor do the Texans possess enough top-end talent for the offense to utilize it to its full potential. Basically, it's a cute idea that lacks overarching purpose. The ground game situation has been a veritable disaster since rookie running back Damian Pierce was lost for the season, with Daria Gumbawale, Royce Freeman, Rex Burkhead, and fullback Troy Hairston now sharing the load in the backfield with no singular option for any fantasy utility. There's really not much else to say about this backfield other than there's no real indicator of anyone gaining traction over any other in the last week of the season. 
The rushing matchup yields a borderline laughable 4.005 net adjusted line yards metric against a Colts defense holding opposing backfields to just 4.13 yards per carry this season. What's more, the Texans have been utilizing a 3-4 to four man rotation at tight end and 4 primary wide receivers, with Chris Moore and Brandon Cooks the likeliest to operate in near every down pass catching roles to end the season. There are no incentives in play for anyone on this team this week. Furthermore, the Colts have clamped down on opposing pass games this year, ranking above average in most metrics against the pass. Again, Cooks and Moore are the likeliest to see some semblance of bankable volume, but neither should be considered solid options here. How Indianapolis will try to win Things get at least somewhat interesting on the Colts' side of this game as Jeff Saturday continues his audition for a future role with the franchise. One of the biggest things we can bank on with a Saturday-led team is passion and a hard-working culture to not give up which we should expect in the final game of the season. That said, this team has rattled off six straight losses after eking out a victory in Saturday's first game as head coach, so it's not like he has just miraculously turned the franchise around. Expect a run-balanced approach with a moderate pace of play aimed at sustaining drives and winning in the trenches designed to try and assert control of the game environment. They have utilized a rather straight-up offense based from 11 personnel of late with Michael Pittman and Paris Campbell the only two skill position players likely to see near every down usage. Zach Moss has played between 59 and 69% of the offensive snaps in each of the previous three weeks following Jonathan Taylor's season-ending ankle injury, handling 24, 17, and 15 running back opportunities during that stretch. Jordan Wilkins came out of nowhere to share change of pace duties with Deion Jackson after it was assumed to be Jackson's role, effectively cannibalizing the fantasy utility of both parties in the process. But the big news here is the usage from Moss, who has proven to have 25-plus opportunity upside in the right game environment, of which he is highly likely to have here against an opponent seeding the most fantasy points per game to opposing backfields this season. Expect a solid floor of 18-20 to 20 running back opportunities, with ceiling for much more from Moss here, with the biggest knock to his fantasy upside a low touchdown expectation. To be fair, that's a significant blemish. The pure rushing matchup yields a solid 4.48 net adjusted line yards metric, in what will go down as the top on-paper rushing matchup for the Colts all season. The Colts started the season unafraid of attacking through the air, routinely piling up pass attempts with Matt Ryan under center. That has changed drastically through both Sam Ellinger and Nick Foles, who have combined to attempt 23, 29, 29, and 27 passes over four non-Ryan games. Pittman has seen target counts of 6, 7, 8, and 9 in those four games, while Campbell has seen no more than 6 targets in any non-Ryan start. Alec Pierce should operate as the clear wide receiver three, likely ceding some work to Ashton Doolin. Pierce has seen a max of five targets in non-Ryan starts this season. As you can see, there isn't a ton of fantasy upside to be had from the Colts' aerial attack without Matt Ryan under center. Expect Mo Cox and Jelani Woods to split the available tight end snaps almost down the middle in the likely absence of Kylan Granson, which provides only 110-120% to 120% of the offensive snaps available for the two for an offense no longer utilizing heavy rates of 12 personnel. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to play to a low-scoring ground-and-pound affair from start to finish, with neither offense exceedingly likely to generate any sustained drives or points on the board. Both passing offenses lack concentration, while the Texans' backfield is a messy situation to avoid altogether. That leaves but one spot for fantasy upside to develop, which should be considered the only potential upside piece from this game, Zach Moss. With the conservative approach from each respective offense, there is also very little room for any upside to develop, meaning team and game stacks are entirely off the table.
Jets at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37. Game Overview by Hilo. After dropping five consecutive contests, the Dolphins cling to hope for the final spot in the playoffs out of the AFC. They need to beat the Jets and have the Bills beat the Patriots. Skylar Thompson has been named the starter for the Dolphins, with Teddy Bridgewater set to serve as the backup if he makes it back from injury. It's a similar situation to the one we saw earlier in the year against the Vikings, where McDaniel did the same thing, only to see Thompson go down with an injury early in the game. Skylar Thompson came on in relief of Bridgewater after just one series against these same Jets back in Week 5, attempting 33 passes in a game the Jets blew the Dolphins out 40-17. Week 18 marks the return of Joe Flacco as the starting quarterback for the New York Jets. Garrett Wilson saw a combined 33 targets over the first three games of the season while Flacco was starting, with a high snap rate of just 63% during that span. He is now playing 100% of the offensive snaps for the Jets. How New York will try to win. The Jets have been at or below league average in pass rate over expectation in all but three games this season. That said, and even though their defense has allowed the fourth fewest points per game this season, an inability to sustain drives on offense has led to the team attempting 37.1 passes per game this year, a number that increases to a laughably high 50.33 in Mike White or Joe Flacco starts, a sample size of six games this season. Joe Flacco makes his not-so-triumphant return as the starting quarterback after he watched as the team cycled through three other starters, having attempted 155 passes across his three starts this season. While we can't simply pencil in Flacco for 50 pass attempts here, we can safely assume that the team will lean into the pass in the right game environments, and a game against the division rival could be one of those spots. Furthering that potential is the state of the backfield, which lost standout rookie Brees Hall earlier in the season. Michael Carter, Zonovan Knight, and Ty Johnson have been splitting time in the backfield since Hall went down with injury, with none of the lot exceedingly likely to surpass a modest 50% snap rate. What we do know is that Knight has been utilized as the primary early down rusher, Johnson as the primary change of pace back, and Carter as a demi-change-of-pace-slash-passing-down hybrid. That leaves very little room for one of the bunch to emerge as a viable fantasy option, particularly considering the difficult matchup on the ground. The pure rushing matchup yields a laughably low 3.955 net adjusted line yards metric against a Dolphins defense holding opponents to just 3.81 yards per carry this season. Things get interesting through the air for a combination of reasons. First off is the robust pass volume numbers previously mentioned that have come in Mike White or Joe Flacco starts this year. Second is the matchup with a Dolphins defense that is clearly a pass funnel. Lastly, and this one might be the more important, both offensive tackles for the Jets have yet to practice this week with various ailments, which would likely lead to a heavier reliance on short area pass game work. That last bit is extremely important, as it is likely to fundamentally alter the way in which the Jets can move the ball through the air, ending the fantasy upside to deeper A-dot players like Corey Davis and boosting the expectations of Garrett Wilson and Ty Conklin. Furthermore, Garrett Wilson saw a combined 33 targets during Flacco's three starts earlier in the season, all while playing no more than 63% of the offensive snaps in any one game. The electric rookie is now playing every snap for the Jets. How Miami will try to win The Dolphins have had a pass rate over expectation value above league average in all but one to a tag of Iowa start this season. The Dolphins have had a pass rate expectation below league average in all but one non to a start this season. Tua has been ruled out, with the team turning to Skylar Thompson for the start and Teddy Bridgewater as the backup, should the latter be able to play through various injuries. 
As such, it's fair to expect the Dolphins to lean a bit more ground-heavy than we've otherwise seen this season, with Jeff Wilson and Raheem Mostert sharing the rushing load as a 1A-1B split. Furthermore, the Dolphins have turned to the slower pace of play and increased rush rates during their five-game skid, with no clear indication pointing to a change in those dynamics against the Jets. Jeff Wilson has operated as the 1A to Raheem Mostert's 1B over the previous two weeks, receiving 33 running back opportunities to 28 for Mostert during that span. As in, this is as close to a true timeshare as can be this late in the season. The Dolphins had been utilizing elevated rates of 21 personnel through fullback Alex Ingold prior to last week, whose snap rate took a nosedive to just 15% while dealing with a thumb injury. That led to the first game since Week 12 in which the Dolphins utilized any 12 personnel, which is truly remarkable. Ingold got in limited sessions on both Wednesday and Thursday, but his level of participation is in question in what is now a must-win game due to his injury. I tentatively expect Ingold to return to a more natural 45-55% to 55% snap rate here, which should serve to limit the snap rate of Mike Gusecki. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.355 net adjusted line yards metric against the Jets' defense seeding just 21.7 DK points per game to opposing backfields including just eight total touchdowns allowed to the position this season. Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell combined for only 12 targets in the only game in which Skylar Thompson played meaningful snaps this season, with the latter's four other appearances coming with 38% or fewer of the offensive snaps played. Leveraging the discussion above about the decreased reliance on the aerial attack with quarterbacks not named Tua, we should expect a tighter range of pass attempts in the 28-33 attempt range, barring extreme negative game script. That significantly caps the respective ceilings of the top two Miami pass catchers, with neither overly likely to surpass double-digit looks in a difficult matchup through the air. Considering the state of the Dolphins and their matchup with the Jets, I think it's highly likely that the running backs are relied upon more through the air this week, with a likely offensive design built around getting them the ball in space through easy completions. And with each back possessing similar skill sets, it's difficult to project one for significantly greater fantasy utility over the other. Likeliest Game Flow We're likely to see a hard-fought, grinded-out type battle between two AFC divisional opponents that are both trending in the wrong direction to end the year. That said, there are legitimate paths to the game environment erupting, which is likely to be driven by the Jets, which goes against everything we've come to know from these two teams this season. In all actuality, that is the case for this matchup this week. The Jets have shown to be highly adaptable from a play-calling perspective this year, which, when combined with the matchup with a pass-funnel Dolphins defense, is likely to lead to increased volume through the air regardless of game environment. On the other hand, the Dolphins are likelier to take a more conservative approach to game management unless otherwise forced considering they are starting their third-string quarterback. Neither team is likely to play with a large lead barring a highly variant act like a defensive score, which should allow each team to continue those game plans deep into this contest. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Panthers at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 42. Game Overview by Pappy. There isn't much to like in this game. Neither team has anything to play for. Taysom Hill hurts everyone on the Saints' offense. The Panthers' backfield is a three-way timeshare. Rashid Shahid is underpriced for his upside. How Carolina will try to win. Woe to the vanquished. 
This is how the 6-10 and 10 Panthers must feel after giving up 20 points in the fourth quarter of a heartbreaking loss to the Bucks that ended their season last week. Despite a disappointing end, it's fair to say the Panthers had the most remarkable 6-10 and 10 season of all time. They fired their head coach Matt Rule after a 1-4 start before kicking off a fire sale on anything that wasn't nailed down. They traded away their best player, Christian McCaffrey, and their wide receiver too, Robbie Anderson, and started a QB carousel that led to P.J. Walker playing for a month. The entire world thought the Panthers were rolling over, yet somehow after starting 1-4, they managed a much more respectable 5-6 down the stretch and were a bad fourth quarter away from being a favorite to make the playoffs. Quite a year for a team that looked like it was giving up in Week 6. The Panthers found a power-running identity after moving on from CMC, and part of that has been a slow pace of play. They are generally plotting 22nd in overall pace, which is their preference, 23rd in situation neutral pace, and it could be argued they'd rather play even slower, 31st in first half pace, but are willing to speed up if losing, 15th in pace when trailing, which at 6-10 and 10 is often the case. The Panthers' profile is a team that wants to run the ball a ton and play slow, but are willing to play fast and chase points if they're behind which explains why they can create must-have game environments, but also create a ton of duds. The Saints have been strong against the pass, 7th in DVOA, and weak against the run, 19th in DVOA, which sets up perfectly for how the Panthers want to attack. Since Week 6, the number of passing attempts from the Panthers has been 16, 22, 36, 10, 16, 19, 24, 23, 22, and 37. It's possible we never again see a team throw the ball under 25 times in 10 out of 12 games. The Panthers' O-line has been middling overall, 15th ranked by PFF, but they've been stronger run blockers, 8th in adjusted line yards, and they get to take on a struggling Saints front, 20th in adjusted line yards given up. The Panthers were going to try and run anyway, and facing a run-funnel defense probably assures us they will attempt under 30 passes, likely under 25, hoping to ride their running game to victory. How New Orleans will try to win. The 7-9 Saints are riding a three-game win streak and just put a surprising beatdown on NFC heavyweight Philadelphia on the road last week. The Saints' defense has been for real in the second half of the season. Since Week 8, they have allowed only the Ravens to score more than 20 points way back in Week 9 and have kept four of their last five opponents below 17 points. The Falcons scored 18. Regardless of their recent success, it was too little, too late, and the Saints were eliminated from playoff contention last week. The Saints must feel good about their recent play, but the disappointment of being officially eliminated from the playoffs, this also goes for the Panthers, means their intensity level is likely to be lowered in a meaningless game. The Saints generally play slow, 23rd in overall pace, but they want to totally crawl if the game is close, 29th in situation neutral pace, especially if they're ahead, 31st in pace when winning. However, they are willing to speed up if they are chasing points, 12th in pace when trailing. The Saints profile similarly to the Panthers in that they want to run the ball and play slowly, but have the willingness to change tactics if they are behind. That's why, like the Panthers, the Saints have created top-of-the-slate games this year while also creating a ton of duds. The Panthers have been poor against the run, 18th in DVOA, and abused through the air, 27th in DVOA. The Panthers' pass defense isn't going to get any help as standout corner J.C. Horn was placed on the IR this week, officially ending his season. The Panthers have been worse against the pass, but their defense has been weak overall, 26th in DVOA, 
and the Saints don't want to come out throwing. The Saints' run-heavy strategy makes sense when your O-line can't protect, ninth worst adjusted sack rate, and you play a QB, Taysom Hill, that is essentially a running back for a fifth of the snaps. The Saints' line has been above average, 12th in adjusted line yards, and it's more likely that they try and lean on their strengths rather than attacking the Panthers' relative weakness, especially in a game both teams just want to end. Likeliest Game Flow This game opened with a low total, 41.5, and has been stationary through the early part of the week. The Saints opened as moderate, 4-point favorites, with the line coming down slightly to 3.5 as of this writing. Both teams have produced top-of-the-slate games this year, but they've also been involved in mostly games that underwhelm. That's because each of these teams wants to play slow and run the ball, but are also both willing to speed up if they're behind. What happens if this game is played out within one score? Factor in that this game means nothing to either side, and the Saints' defense has been lights out the past month, and the most likely game flow is a close, low-scoring game with a lot of running from both sides, which results in the Saints ultimately winning by keeping the Panthers below 20 points. The Browns at the Steelers kick off Sunday, January 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Cleveland is eliminated from the playoffs, but does not own their first-round pick and is trying to build momentum for next year while maximizing reps and evaluating their team with Deshaun Watson. Pittsburgh is still alive for a playoff berth with a win and some help, while also having the goalkeeping head coach Mike Tomlin's 15-year streak of non-losing seasons intact. In the last six weeks, neither of these teams has been involved in a game where more than 41 points were scored. How Cleveland will try to win Deshaun Watson played his best game as the Browns quarterback in a Week 17 victory over the Commanders, despite completing only 9 of 18 pass attempts. Watson had thrown only two touchdown passes through his first four games this year, before throwing three against Washington last week. Watson's contract ties him to the Browns for a long time, and the team has every incentive to keep trying to build for the future with a game against a division rival to close out the season. The Washington game was very slow-paced and had extremely low play volume on both sides of the ball, and the Browns ran the ball on 63% of their offensive plays. The Browns have been a team that relies on their running game as the foundation of their offense for a long time now, but there was some thought that they would open things up with the dynamic Watson under center. However, Cleveland has run the ball on over 50% of their plays in four of the five games since Watson entered the lineup. The one exception was their 23-10 loss to the Bengals, during which they trailed by two-plus scores for the majority of the game. Looking at this week's matchup, Cleveland faces a very strong Steelers defense that ranks top five in the league against the run, and has been extremely strong against the pass as well, with the exception of some poor performances against elite passing offenses. The Bills, Eagles, and Bengals passing games each had massive games against Pittsburgh with point totals of 38, 35, and 37 respectively, and most of the production in those games came through the air. Since their Week 9 bye, the Steelers' defense has only allowed one of their eight opponents to score more than 17 points in a game. Considering the Browns are averaging only 12.6 offensive points per game with Watson under center, and the Steelers are fully motivated to finish with a winning record and can potentially still make the playoffs, it appears that it will be tough sledding for the Browns' offense. We should once again expect a very run-centric game plan for Cleveland, with them leveraging Watson's legs to extend plays and or drives. 
Pittsburgh's offense has not been explosive by any means this season, making it likely that the Browns will settle into their high run rate and slow offensive tempo for the majority of the game. How Pittsburgh Will Try to Win As mentioned earlier, the Steelers' defense has been lights out since their Week 9 bye, and Pittsburgh has regained their smash-mouth identity as they have ridden that defensive dominance to a 6-2 record during that stretch and put themselves back in the playoff hunt. The Steelers can make the playoffs with a win and losses by the Patriots and Dolphins, both of which are currently underdogs in the betting markets. The Steelers' offense has been far from prolific this year, but has been just good enough and made plays at the right times in recent weeks to keep the Steelers alive. A team that at one point looked like a bottom-five team in the NFL is now on the cusp of a playoff berth. If their defense shows up one more time and quarterback Kenny Pickett is able to manage the game and protect the ball against a Browns team that has evolved into a similar unit to the Steelers in many ways. The Steelers have leaned heavily on their running game recently, with Najee Harris appearing recovered from an early season foot injury and playing at full health once again. Harris has had 25 opportunities carries plus targets in each of the Steelers' last three games, while change-of-pace running back Jalen Warren has also averaged 12 opportunities per game during that stretch. By comparison, quarterback Kenny Pickett has thrown the ball over 30 times only once since Week 12, and when he does pass, most of his passes are in the short to intermediate range, with a relatively broad distribution of targets among skill players. Deontay Johnson and Pat Fryermuth have been the top targets for Pickett, with their short area skill sets fitting what Pittsburgh is asking for from Pickett. Due to the dominance of their defense, the Steelers are leaning primarily on their running game to control tempo, move the chains, and execute a conservative game plan. When they do pass the ball, they want Pickett to prioritize ball security and not take unnecessary chances, something he has done quite well as he has only one interception thrown since their Week 9 bye after throwing eight interceptions in his five games played before the bye. This week, the Steelers face a Browns defense that has performed well against the pass this season, and whose scheme does a good job preventing big plays, while Cleveland also presents one of the worst run defenses in the league. The Steelers will once again lean heavily into their ground-and-pound approach and be very conservative in their play calls for Pickett as they look to win another close, low-scoring affair. Likeliest Game Flow There are obviously outlier scenarios for any NFL game, as we see crazy and unexpected things happen nearly every week. That being said, the expected range of outcomes for this game is one of the most narrow you will ever see. Both teams are playing at relatively full strength and want to compete well in this spot. Both teams are also likely to run the ball on over half of their offensive plays and play at a methodical tempo. Only two games involving either of these teams have had more than 41 points scored since Week 12, and the way things shape up this week, it is likely we see another very low-scoring game. The Steelers don't want to press their passing game and have a great matchup on the ground, while the Browns are likely to continue being very conservative but face a top-notch Steelers defense. The weakness of the Browns' run defense and the ability of Deshaun Watson to salvage first downs with his legs should allow both teams to sustain drives relatively consistently, but there is little hope for explosive plays from either side, and neither team is aggressive enough to expect them to consistently turn drives into touchdowns. 
Rather, we are likely to see a low-scoring field goal contest, regardless of which team plays from ahead, as the Steelers' defense will keep them from falling too far behind, and the Steelers' offense will keep them from getting too far ahead. The Giants at the Eagles. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Eagles will be approaching this as a must-win game, with a win securing the division title, an NFC number one seed, and a loss possibly meaning they fall to a wildcard spot. The Giants are locked into the number six seed in the NFC and have no motivation to risk starters or key players in this game. Philadelphia dominated the first meeting between these two teams, 48-22. How New York will try to win. I could make this section extremely short this week by simply saying they won't. But I don't think JM would appreciate that. (laughs) All jokes aside, the fact is that the Giants are locked into the number six seed in the NFC and are likely to face the Vikings in the first round of the playoffs, a team that they played to a close loss just two weeks ago and who looked awful as they were demolished by the Packers in Week 17. The Giants will almost certainly be resting a majority of their key players for this matchup, with an Eagles team that destroyed them a few weeks ago and is looking to lock up the number one seed in the playoffs. There is some thought of trying to build momentum for the playoffs, but the same can be said about the momentum lost if they play everyone and get destroyed again the week before the playoffs start. Assuming the Giants take this approach, Tyrod Taylor is likely to start or at least play a majority of the game. It seems reasonable the Giants could take a preseason approach by starting many of their guys but pulling them after a series or two. Taylor has seen limited work this season and has five rush attempts compared to eight pass attempts. This underscores the likelihood of a run-heavy game plan for the Giants, especially against an Eagles defense whose Achilles heel all season has been stopping the run, as evidenced in their surprising loss to the Saints last week. We should expect New York to run the ball and have a spread-out passing attack that focuses on short areas of the field and simple concepts that get the ball out of the quarterback's hands quickly. With Saquon Barkley also likely to sit out or be extremely limited, it seems likely that the Giants' offense will struggle to move the ball this week, and consistent scoring will be hard to come by. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win The Eagles have struggled down the stretch of the season, in large part due to the shoulder injury that has sidelined Jalen Hurts. This week, things are very clear for them, as they need a win to secure the division title and top seed in the NFC playoffs. The 49ers and Cowboys are both huge favorites in their games, so a loss for Philadelphia would almost certainly mean they fall to the number 5 seed and a first-round road playoff game which would be an incredible fall from grace after a dominant first 15 weeks of the season. Luckily for the Eagles, they have about the best situation you can imagine to get back on track this week. As described in the Giants section, New York has nothing to gain this week and is very likely to rest most of their key players to preserve them for the playoffs. Jalen Hurts was also back at practice this week working with the first-team offense, a sign that he has a good shot at returning to lead the Eagles' offense, a unit that is the highest scoring in the league. The Eagles' approach to this game should be full throttle from the start, but they may alter exactly how they play due to the injury Hurts is dealing with. Due to his shoulder injury, I would expect more of their rushes to be through their running backs and less use of Hurts himself as a rusher. 
through the air, Hertz will have his full cast of receiving weapons available for the first time since week 10. Therefore, the whole of the Eagles' offense should be a more traditional look that doesn't rely as much on the rushing ability of Hertz as what we saw during most of the first 15 weeks. This should, in theory, give the other skilled players on the Eagles higher floors and ceilings as there is a chance the Eagles will pull back later in the game but they will likely have had a significant amount of offensive success if they are able to do that, and removing the Hurts rushing factor from their production condenses things for everyone else. Likeliest Game Flow This part is pretty simple this week. The Eagles have the highest scoring offense in the NFL, and are likely getting back their MVP caliber quarterback for a matchup with a bottom-tier defense that will be resting many key players. The first time these teams played, the Giants gave it everything they could and still trailed 24-7 at halftime. It seems extremely likely that the Eagles are able to get off to a good start here and dominate from start to finish, as implied by the lopsided spread this game is carrying. The Eagles will likely try to get things to a point where they are fully comfortable that the Giants can't make a comeback before throttling back, and their explosiveness offensively has been on display with several monster first halves this season. The Eagles should jump out ahead to a healthy lead and may relieve Hurts relatively early, then gradually rest other key players as the game wears on. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cowboys at the Commanders Kickoff Sunday, January 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41. Game Overview, by Mike Johnson. Dallas has a lot left to play for, with the NFC East division title still a possibility if the faltering Eagles lose. Washington has been eliminated from the playoffs, but still has a chance at a 500 season with a win this week, and we should expect their best shot this week. Dallas won the first meeting between these teams without the services of quarterback Dak Prescott. Rookie quarterback Sam Howell will make his first career regular season appearance for the Commanders. How Dallas will try to win. The dream is still alive for the Cowboys, as they can win the NFC East with a win plus an Eagles loss, and have an outside shot at the one seed if the 49ers were to lose as well. Due to that possibility, we can expect Dallas to be fully focused and prepared as they enter this game and try to control what they can control, with a statement victory to finish off their season with a terrific 13-4 record. The one caveat here is that the Eagles are playing a New York Giants team that is locked into the NFC's sixth seed and has nothing to play for or gain by risking key players against a team that has already beaten them handily once this season. If Philadelphia were to take significant early control of that game, it is feasible that the approach of the Cowboys coaches could change mid-game as far as protecting their own key players. If the Eagles win, the Cowboys will end up as the five seed in the NFC and have a road game against the Bucks next week, which is coincidentally where they started their season and they were thoroughly dominated in a 19-3 loss. As we have discussed all year, the Cowboys' offense is built around the strength of their offensive line and running backs. They build off the pressure their running game puts on the opposing defenses by using play action and other concepts to open things up through the air. 
Dak Prescott does a lot of very good things, but it should be noted that he is tied for the league with 14 interceptions, despite missing five games early on. Dak has only one 300-yard passing game, and that was in Week 16 against the Eagles, which was primarily fueled by his own early pick six, which put the Cowboys in an early deficit. The Cowboys play at one of the league's fastest paces, second in situation-neutral pace for the season, and run the ball at the fourth-highest rate in the league, providing a unique blend of speed and power. This week, they expect to get Pro Bowl running back Tony Pollard back from his one-week absence, bringing the Cowboys' 1-2 running back punch with Pollard and Elliott back into the fold. Pollard's absence was noticeable last week as the offense lacked the explosion and speed that has been evident for much of the season, especially with Prescott healthy. Due to Dak's mistake-prone ways, the importance of this game, and the strength the offense is built on, we should expect the Cowboys to lean heavily into their identity and lean on their running backs against a good but not unbeatable Washington front. Shot plays and intermediate concepts will also be used, primarily off-play action, as a means to leverage the attention that Washington will surely be giving the running game. How Washington Will Try to Win The Commanders will start rookie quarterback Sam Howell. Howell has not made an appearance in a regular season game this season, although he played relatively well in the preseason. Undoubtedly, however, this test against a motivated top-five Cowboys defense will be much different than what Howell faced in those games in August. Howell had a good career at North Carolina and got some buzz during the pre-draft season before falling to the fifth round when the draft actually came around. Howell is a player whose leadership and toughness traits outweigh his physical tools and skills, as he struggles as a passer and is nothing exceptional as an athlete, by NFL standards. Howell is capable of making some throws, and he can make plays with his legs, but higher-level NFL concepts are likely to be too much to expect from him in this debut in a very difficult matchup. Understanding who Howell is and what the commanders will need to do to give him a chance at success is key to understanding how they will try to win this game. First of all, Washington already has the fifth lowest pass rate over expectation. We should expect that to continue as they use their running game to control the clock, limit long down and distant situations, and protect their weakness at QB. Next, we need to consider when they throw, how will they throw? Howell is not a quarterback who works through progressions well, and his accuracy is inconsistent, meaning that the commanders will want to give him quick, easy reads to get the ball out of his hands and keep him from being swallowed up by an elite Cowboys pass rush. An increased role for Curtis Samuel could be in order, as the commanders could look to use him on short area work as an extension of the running game. We could also see an increased use of screen passes and play action into short looks to tight ends in the flats as ways to diversify their approach without asking too much of Howell. It would also seem likely that the commanders will try to get Howell outside of the pocket at times and give him one or two reads to the side of the field he is moving to with the option to run if nothing is clearly open. What I would not expect a lot of is Washington leaving Howell as a sitting duck in the pocket. He has a tendency to hold onto the ball too long in those situations, opening him up to sacks and fumbles, while also having a tendency to be late on downfield throws and hang them up for defenders to get their hands on. Likeliest Game Flow The Cowboys played with their food a bit in a 27-13 victory over the Titans last Thursday night as they allowed Tennessee to stay within one score of them into the fourth quarter. 
Keep in mind that the Titans were starting a practice squad quarterback who has been with the team for two weeks and were resting many of their key players, as the Cowboys made self-inflicted turnovers, penalties, and mistakes to keep the game's outcome in question far longer than it should have. That performance and the respect the Cowboys should have for the commander's defense should keep the Cowboys focused on executing and not giving Washington any free-scoring chances. Both teams should be focused on their running games, which are likely to keep the clock moving. Prescott is second in the league in completion percentage, and the commanders will be focused on giving Howell easy completions, which means between the runs and completions, the clock should be moving very quickly all game. The commanders face the second lowest amount of plays per game from their opponents, a stat that shows how well they have slowed down games this season. While the Dallas offense is capable of being explosive, they should not feel much threat from the Washington offense early in this game, and they will likely be relatively cautious early on until the commanders prove it, that they can provide a threat. Otherwise, a slow-paced game that Dallas gradually takes control of is the most likely scenario. There is a chance that the Cowboys could start resting players sometime early in the second half if the Eagles are handily in control of their game against the Giants, although the status of Jalen Hurts will likely have a lot to do with the likelihood of that. If Hurts plays, the Eagles could easily jump out to a huge lead early and force the Cowboys' hand. That scenario is less likely if Gardner Minshew starts. In discussing this possibility, we should also reflect on the expected game flow listed above. As discussed, the game clock should move briskly in this game and is likely to be one of the shorter games of the week in terms of real-world time. It is reasonable that this game could be starting the second half around the same time the first half of the Eagles game is ending. In that case, they would be halfway through the third quarter before the Eagles start the second half. A lot can happen in an NFL game, so if the Eagles game is even within two scores at halftime, we should expect the Cowboys to continue to play full throttle. Because of this, even in a scenario where the Cowboys lose motivation in the middle of the game, it is likely that doesn't happen until around the end of the third quarter. Therefore, we should be able to take a relatively normal approach to how we look at this game since the majority of it will be played full throttle from both sides. The Chargers at the Broncos kick off Sunday, January 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Chargers are seeking the coveted five seed, which would avoid a first-round game with the Chiefs, Bills, or Bengals. However, there is also a path to them not needing a win in order to secure that spot. Denver gave Kansas City a good game last week, and they are always very competitive at home. The Broncos do not own their first-round pick, and a win would be a positive note to end an unbelievably disappointing season. This should be a very competitive and spirited AFC West battle to end the season. How Los Angeles will try to win The Chargers have found their way into the playoffs with a fast-paced offense and a defense that has had ups and downs, but has found ways to make plays at the right times this season. Los Angeles will be either the 5 seed or 6 seed in the AFC, with Sunday's games determining exactly where they end up. The difference between the number five and number six seeds is relatively large, with the better seed getting to face either the Titans or Jaguars in the first round of the playoffs, rather than the Bills or the Bengals. The Ravens travel to Cincinnati for a 1 p.m. game on Sunday, and if the Ravens lose that game, they are currently nine-point underdogs with a 17% implied probability to win, 
then the Chargers will be locked into the fifth seed regardless of the outcome of their game, and will be aware of that fact when their game starts. The Chargers will have to submit their list of inactive players before knowing the outcome of the Ravens game, so we should expect them to have all of their key players dressed and ready, but if the Ravens lose, then this game could quickly be turned into a glorified preseason game for many of the key Chargers players. From a philosophical standpoint, the Chargers have built their offense as a high-volume passing unit that also plays with great tempo, ranking fifth in the NFL in both pass rate over expectation and situation-neutral pace of play. The Chargers' passing game operates primarily in the short and intermediate areas of the field, mixing in occasional deep shots that become more frequent when their backs are against the wall and or when big play receiver Mike Williams is healthy. The Chargers have run the ball a bit more lately and have been using backup running back Joshua Kelly more consistently to spell Austin Eckler in running situations. The Denver defense was lights out for the first half of the season, but has dropped off considerably of late, allowing 31.8 points per game over the last four weeks. Albeit, two of those games were against the Chiefs and one was on the Christmas Day, we're not playing for Hackett anymore performance. If the Chargers need to win and their offenses all systems go, we should expect them to continue their renewed focus on their running game, the relative weakness of the Broncos' defense, and pepper short area targets to Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler, as they did in their first matchup where they actively avoided challenging star Broncos quarterback Patrick Sertan, who was shadowing Mike Williams. How Denver will try to win. (laughs) Sorry, that title made me laugh. In their first game without Nathaniel Hackett as their head coach, the Broncos went into Arrowhead and challenged the top team in the AFC, the Chiefs, for four quarters. Admittedly, Kansas City has made a habit out of allowing inferior opponents to keep games close with them, but the performance was nonetheless very impressive for a Broncos team that had looked completely lost the week before. The Chiefs' defense has been terrific at home all season, and the Broncos were the first opposing team since the Bills in Week 6 to score 20-plus points in Kansas City. As the Broncos look to build momentum for the offseason, we should expect a full effort from them this week against a Chargers team who will either have a lot to play for or nothing to play for. In either regard, the Broncos should be fully invested in washing the taste out of their mouth of a forgettable 2022 season. Denver threw the ball on 62% of their offensive plays in Week 17, and Russell Wilson scrambled for two touchdowns as Denver looked relatively competent against a formidable opponent. This week, the Broncos face a Chargers defense whose weakness all season has been against the run, although Denver really doesn't have the personnel to employ a high-volume rushing attack, and their desire to continue to develop the passing game that they have invested a lot of capital into will likely keep them focused on developing that area of their team. I would expect a similar approach this week in terms of play calling and usage, as last week Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton were the only wide receivers to catch a pass, and the Broncos had two running backs combined for seven catches and three tight ends combined for eight catches. The Chiefs' defense has been very tough at home this year and kept the Broncos' offense from having any success down the field, as the receivers were held to mostly short area work and the biggest passing plays of the day were two backs and tight ends. Chase Edmonds has returned the last two weeks to provide a nice change of pace complement to lead back Latavius Murray. Both backs should see plenty of action against a Chargers defense that has struggled to contain opposing running backs both on the ground and in the passing game. Likeliest Game Flow As noted earlier, based on this game's betting odds, there is an 83% implied probability of the Chargers having no incentive to risk key players in a game that will have no impact on their playoff seeding. The details of how that would happen are critical, as the Chargers will need to prepare and have their top players active in order to be ready for the event that they need to win. 
Due to NFL roster constructions, this means that the Chargers won't be able to just sit all their starters because they simply do not have enough players to do so. To that end, the Chargers will want to keep things relatively status quo in terms of their philosophy, play calling, and how they operate to keep their rhythm as they head into the playoffs. The first game between these teams was a low-scoring 19-16 Chargers victory, but the recent fall of the Broncos' defense, along with a Denver offense that has been relieved of Nathaniel Hackett, should mean greater opportunities for this game's scoring to get rolling. Denver is averaging 22.5 points per game over the last four weeks and has a good chance of scoring points once again this week, especially if the Chargers are able to rest some players. The game is likely to be close early on, regardless of the status of the Chargers' playoff positioning, as the Broncos' offense has not been quick-hitting and explosive even in their better performances, while the Chargers' offense is built for methodical drives, especially against the Broncos' high-end pass defense. The Chargers' scheme is solid enough, and frankly, their second unit of skills players has enough experience this year due to injuries, and has enough talent that they could put up points even in a meaningless spot, while Denver has sneaky potential for their best offensive game of the season if things break just right. This feels like a game that most people will overlook, but I am very interested in. The Rams at the Seahawks. Kickoff Sunday, January 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Rams are still giving it everything they have despite being eliminated from the playoffs weeks ago. Seattle needs to win and get some help in order to make the playoffs, while regardless of that outcome, they are surely focused on finishing the season with a winning record. After being involved in many shootouts this season, Seattle's defense has tightened up recently, and their offense has struggled against some tough defenses. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams have competed well down the stretch of the season, going 2-2 two and two since acquiring Baker Mayfield with wins over the Raiders and Broncos while losing to the Packers and Chargers. One thing you can notice about that information is that the good performances came against teams that are out of the playoff race, while the losses were against teams that are likely to make the playoffs. This week, the Rams face a Seahawks team that is fighting for their playoff lives and who beat them just a few weeks ago in Los Angeles. The Rams' offense has revolved primarily around running back Cam Akers the last few weeks, after Akers was nearly cut from the team due to some disagreements earlier this season. Akers has looked like his former explosive self recently, as he finally appears to be recovered from his torn Achilles suffered in the summer of 2021. Akers has amassed 380 total yards from scrimmage over the past three weeks, while quarterback Baker Mayfield has thrown for only 473 yards during that time. Basically, Akers has accounted for around half of the Rams' offense, and this matchup with a Seahawks run defense that has struggled all season sets up perfectly for the Rams to continue leaning on Akers. The Seahawks' secondary has been very good, especially of late, as their scheme discourages deep passing and their young secondary has been playing at a high level. Their pass defense has held four consecutive quarterbacks to 240 passing yards or less, and their only real issue was in containing George Kittle three weeks ago, but most of that damage was done after the catch. The Rams are limited in perimeter talent, and tight end Tyler Higby is nowhere near the tackle breaker that Kittle is making it very likely that once again the Rams' offense relies on field position and the running game to be competitive. How Seattle Will Try to Win 
The Seahawks offense surprised everyone this season with their surprising efficiency and occasional explosiveness, which, along with their disappointing defense, led to many high-scoring games. Recently, that has changed a bit, as the last three Seattle games have averaged only 32.3 points per game, despite two of those games being against high-powered offenses of Kansas City and San Francisco. The Seattle defense has tightened up, primarily thanks to some outstanding play in their secondary, and their offense has battled injuries and tough matchups that have led to a significant downturn in production. Kenneth Walker is their lead running back and continues to get healthy workloads, but is still battling an ankle injury sustained the first time they faced the Rams. In the passing game, Tyler Lockett has broken a finger and sustained a leg injury in the last three weeks, while Will Disley was put on injured reserve a week ago. After opening things up through the air for much of the season, the Seahawks have turned to their running game more recently due to matchups, game scripts, and injuries. This week, they face a Rams team that they shredded through the air in the first meeting, although much of that had to do with injuries to their backfield while their receiving core was at full strength. This week, the tables have turned a bit as Seattle is playing at home with their season on the line and their injuries are greater to their receiving core. The Seahawks have leaned on Walker as the foundational piece of their offense recently, as he carried the ball nearly 30 times against the Chiefs despite Seattle trailing all game, and had 23 carries against the Jets' stout run defense. This tells us that Walker will once again be an integral part of the game plan, with DK Metcalf and the Seattle tight ends also getting a healthy percentage of targets in the passing game against a Rams defense that doesn't get much pressure, but plays a very high rate of zone coverage shells that discourage downfield passing. Likeliest Game Flow The most likely game flow here is very similar to what we saw last week when the Seahawks hosted the Jets. The Seattle defense has improved recently, and the Rams' offense, outside of a collapse by the Broncos on Christmas Day, has struggled immensely this season. In a raucous road environment, it is hard to expect the Rams to put up a huge offensive game, which should allow Seattle to rely on another strong defensive outing and build a lead through a calculated offensive approach against a Rams defense that has been fine, but has not shut down many opponents recently. Pete Carroll's conservative tendencies are likely to take over this week, as we've seen the last couple of weeks already, with the Seattle season on the line. The Rams' defense is solid enough and the Seattle offense conservative enough that we shouldn't expect an offensive explosion from the Seahawks, while the Rams' offense is likely to be able to move the ball on occasion, but given their matchup should not make many explosive plays or have much success converting drives into touchdowns in Seattle territory. The Rams play at a slow pace and the Seahawks have throttled back recently, leaving us with potential play volume concerns to add to the already modest scoring environment. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cardinals at the 49ers kick off Sunday, January 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson David Blau will make another start at quarterback for the Cardinals. The 49ers are currently the two-seed in the NFC and could end up as high as the number one or as low as the number three. The 49ers dominated the first meeting between these two teams a few weeks ago and are 5-0 in games with Brock Purdy at quarterback. San Francisco has significant advantages on both sides of the ball and is likely to control what should be a low-tempo game. How Arizona will try to win 
The Cardinals' season is lost, and many key players are out for them already. David Blau will make his second consecutive start after a fine performance in Week 17 against a much less intimidating Falcons defense. As Hilo discussed last week, the Cardinals' offense doesn't really change much regardless of who the quarterback is. They throw the ball on roughly 60% of their offensive plays, and their scheme is more horizontal than vertical, with a low yards per attempt in the passing game and a methodical running game that lacks explosive plays. We should expect much of the same here, as head coach Cliff Kingsbury is embattled amid rumors he may step down from the Cardinals, or, more likely, be let go as the team has many internal issues they are dealing with. The 49ers' defense presents a very tough challenge and dominated the Cardinals in their first matchup despite the presence of Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins, who will both miss this game. The Cardinals should once again have a spread offense that plays with mixed tempos but consistently short area concepts in the passing game, while trying to create running lanes through their spread formations. Against a top-notch 49ers run defense trying to lock in home field advantage through at least the divisional round of the playoffs, this task looks like a tough one for a lame duck Cardinals offense. The stout nature of San Francisco's run defense will likely keep Arizona from moving the ball at all on the ground, which will leave Blau in a lot of third and long situations that will be difficult to convert. How San Francisco will try to win The 49ers currently sit as the two-seed in the NFC and have the division title locked up, but still have a lot to play for. The Vikings play in the early game against the Bears, who are sitting Justin Fields and starting Nathan Peterman. And assuming Minnesota wins that game, the 49ers will need to win to lock up the two-seed, which would mean at least two home playoff games. The 49ers have an outside shot at the number one seed and a first-round bye if the Eagles lose to the Giants, although that scenario seems unlikely as the Giants are locked into the number six seed and will likely rest key players. The 49ers have gone 5-0 in games that Brock Purdy has played, while scoring 33 or more points in four of those games. Prior to that stretch, the 49ers had scored at least 33 points only twice all season, and one of those times was against this Cardinals team, when they were close to full strength. After nearly blowing what was expected to be a cakewalk game to Jarrett Stidham and the Raiders, the 49ers will look to build back positive momentum in their final regular season game, while locking in their playoff positioning. The Cardinals' defense has struggled recently against running games, and they are likely to have their hands full with Christian McCaffrey this week. The return of Debo Samuel should spread out the usage of players in the passing game while making an already thriving offense even more dynamic. George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk have been clicking with Purdy recently and should continue in their roles, while Samuel will likely get some short-area throws and schemed looks as the 49ers try to shake the rust off him heading into the playoffs. But they will also likely limit his reps in a game they can control to keep him relatively fresh and healthy. Likeliest Game Flow While on the surface this matchup may seem similar to last week's surprisingly competitive Raiders 49ers game, backup quarterback for a team eliminated from the playoffs against one of the top teams in the league, there are far fewer paths to a competitive game here than what we saw last week. The 49ers are playing at home, and the Cardinals have been a mess for the second half of the season, scoring 20 points only once since Week 10. The Raiders have a poor record, but have been competitive in nearly every game this year, so their finding a way to compete last week was not all that surprising in hindsight. The predictable and familiar nature of a divisional opponent like the Cardinals should let the 49ers' defense dominate from the start. 
The 49ers offense is likely to continue moving the ball very well and build an early lead that lets them gradually rest key players as an overwhelmed Arizona team plays out the end of a wildly disappointing season.